1: Hello, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. I'm Kim France.
0: And I'm Jen Romolini.
1: Later on the show, we'll be talking to author and activist Mia Birdsong about community and redefining a successful life. But first, let's have a little check-in. Jen, how's it going?
0: Well, it's going better than it was last week. I was having a really hard time last week. My birthday was a few weeks ago. I don't know. It's just like it's turning 48. It was just bringing up a lot of stress and fear about getting older. I don't know, particularly around my professional identity, vanity. I feel like I've aged like 10 years in this pandemic. I don't know about you, but I just,
1: and, we all do.
0: And anyway, in the science experiment that is like my perimenopausal body. And <laughs> anyway, so then I had this revelation last week that All this fear and anxiety was making me shut down and close myself off. And I was feeling really negative and hard. But what I really needed was to start feeling open and curious and more self-accepting and kind of just accepting of everything that's been happening and getting older. So I let myself cry a lot. And then... I went and I got a bunch of tattoos that I've been wanting for a long time. And, you know, it's so stupid, but it felt so good to just sit with a stranger. I mean, I was double masked, of course, but I was in this loft in Koreatown in LA and it was just me and this guy. And he was this really sweet British guy and, you know, it was nothing sexy or anything, but I just felt this sense of myself and of newness and of change. And so I guess my recommendation for the week is... Getting tattoos in midlife. Um, and also I did another thing, which I treated myself to this uh, amazing hand cream by Lilabo. And it's not greasy and it's creamy and it's moisturizing and it has like a luxurious smell of rich people. And so <laughs> I've been feeling a lot better. A
1: little self-care, getting a tattoo as
0: self-care. Yes. And also just that it's weird to like mark your body and mark the different stage of your body. Like I really, I've been really enjoying that aspect of getting tattoos later in life. I know it might sound weird, but it really has meant something to me.
1: I didn't get my first tattoo till I was 39 years old. And I didn't get another tattoo until I was over 50. And then I just got a flurry of tattoos. I think that in fact, middle age is the perfect time to get tattoos because you're much more likely to get something you're not going to regret.
0: I agree. I agree. And it's just like, and you've thought about it for a long time. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like So long. So anyway, but also just like that, just being open to new things. I just feel like this pandemic has really like closed me down so much and like, taken a lot of the lightness of me and the bounciness that, you know, that, that, that age starts to take away as well. So it's like a double whammy. And I'm really trying to find that lightness as much as I can in like my day-to-day life. And whether it's like a a fucking hand cream or a tattoo or whatever, a new cup, a new tea, (laughs) you know, it's like wherever I could find it. You
1: know, I mean, I look at my mom who's 83 and who I know I talk about all the time. But she has never stopped being curious about things. She takes an art class. She plays mahjong with her buddies on the computer. She's always trying new things. And I do think it's part of what keeps you young.
0: I do, too. And I think that... As we get older and we start to shut ourselves off and we become like these sort of cranky Andy Rooney-esque people, you know, (laughs) and we're just, we're having these like knee-jerk reactions because we don't understand something, right? Often is what it is. Like it's new to us and we don't understand it. And so we're like, ah, that's weird. That's not the way I always did it or, you know, whatever it is. And I really want to avoid that. I think that's going to make getting older much more unpleasant, you know, yeah, so I'm trying to stay open, and speaking of staying open, Mia bird song has a lot of good wisdom about staying or becoming open to other people, which I think is really interesting and useful, just the idea of community and being vulnerable with each other, I think it's so important as we get older and as we have to deepen our relationships.
1: Yep, I think she says some really great things in this episode. I think some of them feel intuitive, but other ones were completely new to me, and I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Me too. Let's let's get into it. Our guest today is Mia Birdsong. Mia is an author activist, and community curator who's dedicated her professional life to changing the way we think about family in America. Her 2015 TED Talk, The Story We Tell About Poverty Isn't True, has been viewed more than 2 million times. Mia's most recent book, How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community, was released last year. Welcome, Mia. Thank
2: you. So glad to be here
0: i have to tell you i am giddy about this conversation um i last year when i was having a really hard time in the middle of covid i discovered your book it was by like a strange serendipity i was listening to a podcast i've never been able to find the podcast again and i bought your book on audio because i wanted to listen to it right away and I loved it so much that I bought a hard copy of it because I wanted to be able to hold it and highlight it. And I, I just love it so much. And I'm so grateful to talk to you today. Thank you so much. I've always thought that in some way that that writers, particularly nonfiction writers, they write the books that they ne- themselves need. And I'm wondering if that was true for you.
2: Totally. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I think sometimes... Nonfiction, and this is not a critique, but I think sometimes nonfiction is, especially in the like how to be a person genre, is someone who has come to some conclusions about something and then is reflecting and like sharing their knowledge and wisdom with their readers. This was very much a book that was written while I was in process. And I feel like I'm so grateful that, you know, it took like two years to do the research and the writing of the book. And along that, you know, along that journey, my thinking changed, my um, orientation toward things changed. And then like, like materially, my life changed. Um, The way that I built family and friendship and community for myself shifted from when I started the book till when I ended it. And then certainly... You know, then the pandemic happened. And I mean, so many of the things that I learned, I had to like rethink, but then there was also just that I had done all of that work before the pandemic. So entering into it, uh, I'm just grateful that that was that I'd done all that work beforehand, but it was very much the book that I needed to read.
0: So interesting to me, you 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 write and release this book about community and connectedness and you know how we show up for each other. And then there's this massive shift in how we're able to show up for each other. How did COVID change the way you thought about community?
2: You know, the, the, the kind of biggest change is that it is more dangerous for us to be in person with each other, right? And that creates an obstacle, right, to our ability to be in relationship with each other, But in many ways, I feel like what I experienced and what I witnessed was people deepening their sense of connection and community and really having to rely on each other in ways that they didn't before the pandemic, even if we had to be kind of creative about what that looked like because we couldn't be physically in each other's presence
0: And intentional too, I I suspect, right? So it has to be very intentional because it's you're not running, Kim and I were talking about this the other day, you're not running into people on the street anymore. There's not that happenstance. So if you want to feel connected to people, you have to take action.
2: It, It becomes a filter for your relationships because you can only be intentional about so many people. You know, and I think too, the added kind of um, emotional and like psychic burden of the trauma of being in a pandemic means that we don't have as much bandwidth. I feel like it's made folks really thoughtful about the relationships that they're maintaining and tending to. Part of what I'm looking forward to is a little more of the like like the fluffy relationships, like the ones that aren't the ones that I tend to, um, but are people that I really like enjoy and like to hang out with and see. So I'm I'm excited for those to return.
0: There's a phrase in your book that I'd never heard before, and I've not stopped thinking about it since I read it, which is toxic individualism. Mm. And I really want you to explain to listeners what toxic individualism is and and you know how you kind of sort of came upon that phrase.
2: Yes. So let me be very clear. I did not I did not coin this myself. Um I was part of a group of people thinking about culture change that the Insight Center, which is a think tank here in Oakland, they do national work around the economy and race. They brought together a group of us multiple times to do some just deep thinking about culture change work. And I don't even remember who the first person who spoke it in the group was, but I think that the phrase came out of a conversation that we were having. Toxic individualism is, you know, it's an orientation toward yourself, oneself, and your agency that denies your interdependence with others and harms people. Right. And I'm making that up like we didn't like write down a definition of it. But that's kind of how I think about it. A perfect example is how there's been a group of people during the pandemic who have refused to wear masks. Those folks are practicing toxic individualism. Right. Mm -hmm. Their focus is entirely on themselves and a very warped idea of what freedom is. And they are making a choice that really impacts other people, <laughs> not them, not them, right? Um, we wear masks to to protect other people, not ourselves.
1: Toxic individualism reminds me a little bit of the AA concept that alcoholics think that they're all special and unique and that <laughs> that can be a really destructive thing.
2: But it's it's, it's beyond thinking that you're special and unique because you can think you're special. Like, I think I'm special and unique. But That doesn't it, mean it, that but- I'm like specialer uniquer than than other people. It also doesn't um you know part of it toxic individualism is about prioritizing like what you want and what you think you deserve and should have over the well-being of other people, right? Like my, you know, discomfort of wearing a mask is not more important. Is is that in fact way less important than um the potential lives I might take by spreading COVID.
0: Right. I, I, when I think about it and the way I've thought about it is we were raised to think about work in particular as a winner take all proposition. Right. And the way that we've been working and, the toxic individualism that I've seen in workplaces where it's not collaborative, it's not, it's not about sharing and it's not about thinking about other people because you're so focused on your own prize. I think that was so damaging to me as I was, you know, in the 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 height of my career. And I, I think that it, if I had thought more expansively. I I would have been a lot better off in, you know, in jobs and my professional life.
2: Yeah. And I would expand that to say that, that, you know, if you are socialized in America, you're taught to think that way about life. We are taught that individualism is actually like what we're going for. And the idea is that you are going, that the way that you achieve happiness and success, right, is by climbing some, (laughs) ladder that's been set up for us, right? And by achieving some set of um, goals that have been set up for us, and that you're in competition with everyone else in order to do that. And the way that you win is you, you, you know, get to the top of the ladder, and you um, hoard all of the power and resources and wealth that you can. And that inherently comes at the expense of other people.
1: Is is that the why you say that the is that why you say the idea of the self-made person has failed us?
2: Yeah, I mean, one it's a lie, right? Like no one's self-made. Like <laughs> I'm I'm like we are all reliant on other people. You know, again, another big reveal to many people of the pandemic is like you don't eat if people are not like out, you know, picking food and driving trucks to deliver that food to the grocery store and stocking shelves and buying or getting, getting your groceries for you and delivering them to your house, right? You don't eat if that doesn't happen. We're all, <laughs> there's infrastructure of humans around us that enables our lives. And I feel like it's a lie that is mostly told by, you know, people who have achieved something and the ways in which they depend on other people are just invisible to them. That's what I was thinking,
1: that it's why, how is it that people are so capable, and I include myself in this, of, of, of forgetting that, of having such a blind spot?
2: Well, again, because we've been told, right, that, that, that you, that people, we could, you know, what success is, you work hard, and you make it, and then, like, you're successful. And, that, and we take a tremendous amount of pride in the idea that we do that by ourselves, right? Needing mm-hmm. other people, relying on other people is considered weakness.
0: And it's making us lonely, too. Oh, my
2: God. And it's particularly making, you know, so it's not like everyone has equal access to this shitty kind of success. (laughs) Because we're, you know, we we live in a culture that is fundamentally infused with and built upon privilege. I mean, oppression that privileges people who are white and able-bodied and male, et cetera, et cetera, over other people. So the success that people who have privilege experience is inevitably aided by their unearned privilege. And the people who don't have those privileges, it's not like they're just like hanging out without privileges. They are actually, you know, held back by systemic and cultural barriers. So if you don't, ever, you know, if you don't have to like do a whole lot because you're a straight, able-bodied white man who was born into a wealthy family, and you're t- you're told right that the way that you become successful is by doing hard work, and what hard work, what what success looks like is about like owning and having a lot of stuff. Then you're like, oh, look how hard I worked! Here is the evidence of my hard work. All of these things that I have, right?
0: The spoils.
2: Yes, <laughs>
0: of my labor.
2: <laughs> and it doesn't occur to you to be like, hmm, yeah. like how did I actually get these things? Who who actually did this? And of course, the problem with it is is that, you know, like it is it is creating real, real barriers for other people. And it's not, you know, I think some folks are like, oh, what we want is we want to like equalize everybody's access to success. And I'm like, no, 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 we really want to change how we define success and happiness, because I'm not interested as a black woman in achieving this like white man standard of success.
0: And now a word from our sponsors. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
0: Support for Everything is Fine comes from ritual. So I love ritual. Everyone knows I love ritual. I talk about ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. and Hiya, Sarah absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long. And I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it. Do it. And we're back. One of the things I found really interesting in the book and in your research is um, that you found that the people who are best at community are often, are most often those who have been left behind or excluded from the American dream.
2: Yeah, I think that, the, that often the folks who are thinking outside of that construct of what success and happiness looks like. Are the people for whom it hasn't worked right it is either as asking people to be someone other than who they are or that system has like you know like i said created systemic barriers to their well-being let's be clear like those systems are doing um tremendous harm to people of color to women and gender non-conforming people to disabled people to poor folks so if you don't have those systems to support your well-being, then you figure something else out. And I think so often what happens is people figure out that they need to be working together in order to survive. And and what happens in America is that when you have privilege or when you have, you know, an excess of resources, you're basically able to substitute human connection with money. Right. You buy the the support you need. You pay for people to do things that is what we used to do for each other, right? Like I I didn't my friends did not help me, you know, build my house. I mean, obviously my house was built before I got, but like, you know, we don't right. do that we don't do that for each other, right? We we pay people to to build our houses and then we move into them. So there's this way in which, you know, capitalism um as it's practiced in America like has has extracted from us the 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 connections that we used to make with each other and I'm not suggesting that you know we throw it all out I mean there's some things I would like us to throw all the way out but like I'm not suggesting that like oh we have to like go back to some pre-industrial society <laughs> and where we rely on each other for everything um in order to build houses and have food and stuff but I just think it. I mean that's again one of those ways in which we have this idea that we did it on our own and I'm like no somebody built your house that you live in you didn't do that like <laughs> And how, since housing is like a fundamental human need, the fact that you don't have to worry about, you know, do I have shelter means you can do other things. Right. Well, I mean, also having money, I just I think what you're saying is
0: having money takes you away a lot of times from the human experience. I mean, I I grew up kind of poor and by necessity, my mom had to come up with creative solutions for childcare, which involved a lot of grandparents, her friends I mean I would walk to neighbors' houses, so I grew up with a lot more community quite frankly than my child has who had a babysitter and I think about what she's missing because of that
2: totally and let's let's you know I also don't want to romanticize the ways in which people who have who have been harmed for hundreds of years have like built, you know, community with each other because those harms are real and, you know, not everybody makes it like not everybody figures out how to be in deep connection with folks. Lots of people end up um, isolated and dying because of systemic oppression, but there's something to be learned about what it looks like to, to just acknowledge the reality that we That we need each other, more of us would do well to spend less time and energy on trying to hoard things and more time on being in real relationships with other people. You know, I also do economic justice work, so it's not like you know I'm, I want people to have inside of you know in in the context of capitalism we need to have access to cash in order to get our basic human needs met so I want people to have that it is when we get into excess of that or we are like walling ourselves off from like intimacy and connection with our with our like you know bars of gold or whatever it is that rich people
0: well, have. yeah or just staying in our sort of uh, staying really in our pods when we don't have to you know one of the things you talk about a lot in the book, or you talk about some in the book is uh, marriage. And, you know, when we were young, we are sold this idea that, you know, marriage was the end all be all for a successful life. When we actually know from trying marriage that it can be really an, or a monogamous partnership, that it has some serious limitations, you know, and especially if you're looking to a partner to deliver everything
2: to you, it can be really lonely. Totally, and let's and let's be clear about that distinction, right? Like I'm married, um, I love it. It's great. The problem is when we expect our partner to perfectly fulfill multiple roles for us and that we, and we expect us to fill those roles for them. So like the idea that one person is going to be, you know, your best friend, the person that you want to have sex with, the person you have romantic feelings toward, um, your housemate, your co-financial manager, if you have kids, your co-parent, like on and on and on and on and on. Right. When we want, when we expect that we're going to have find one person, to do all those things for us. And we are going to be the person who does all of those things for them. Like we're just, it's a setup for failure. I also think that it limits your growth, right? Because it means that you're looking, you're relying on one person for all of these things and you're not building interdependent relationships with other people. And then when that person dies, because that's going to happen, then what you going to (laughs) do, right? So even (laughs) if it's just to like You know, insurance against being left alone and not having any of, you know, any support system like you need to have other people in your life. And I think, you know, part of the reason my marriage works is because we have other people in our lives, because we have people who, you know, we're not raising our kids by ourselves. We have lots of people who are helping us do that. And not only is it good for us, it is good for our children and it is good for all of those people because they love my kids and my kids are awesome and they get to spend time with them.
1: Well, I have a question. You know, this is a show for women in midlife and I think midlife is a time when people sometimes see their friend groups constrict and the group of, you know, their contemporaries, just the people who are in their circle, the circle gets smaller What would you say to somebody who's listening to this and thinking it makes a lot of sense and trying to figure out how to create community where they don't have much?
2: You know, I get asked about how to do this a lot. And there is not one answer. I think that the thing that feels like not a bullshit answer is that We, we, I feel like if we're really listening to ourselves, we have this longing to be connected with other people and to be in relationship, in the kinds of relationships where we can like, you know, be fully seen and where we feel like we are contributing to each other's, like the richness of each other's lives. And I don't think you need a lot of people to do that, but it does require a kind of vulnerable, like a willingness to be vulnerable. Sometimes it is it is about like, like feeling into the relationships that you have and seeing like, where would you like to have more intimacy? Where would you like to have more closeness? Where would you like to have more room to be more deeply seen and to see other people?
0: Mia, you've said something that I think is, is really smart, and I think it is a barrier to relationships with other people, which is we're often made uncomfortable by other people's pain. I think this is so true, and I think it's true in all kinds of areas. In When people are sick, I think it's true for white people trying to show up uh, properly as allies and not knowing how to show up because they're uncomfortable with a person of color's pain. And I want to talk about this a little bit, because I, I do think it's one of the big impediments to us knowing each other.
2: Yes, it is. And I will say, like, I'm still uncomfortable with other people's pain. It's not like I figured this out. I think the thing that I have worked on for myself, right, is is like when, you know, when you're when you're uncomfortable, all of a sudden it becomes about you. So I've tried to really just be curious about my discomfort and sit with it and notice kind of what it makes me like what, what kinds of responses I want to have, right? So so often when I'm exper- when I'm like confronted with someone else's pain, I want to avoid it or get away from it. Sometimes I want to fix it, but not because or not only because I would like them to not be experiencing pain, but because I feel like their pain is um, asking me to do something that I don't that like I don't feel capable of doing, which is which is fix it, right? So then I try <laughs> to fix it. So so part of it is just like let me get in relationship with my discomfort and not judge it because it is what it is, but un- but try to understand it and try to be curious about it so that I'm not trying to like avoid it or take action or be super activated. I think that we often really like what like I think about my own. You know, when I'm when I'm feeling pain, um, either pain that feels personal and is about something that's happened to me or, you know, like if I think about last summer and the cycles of white violence that took so many black lives, like when I think about that pain, which is which feels personal, but is obviously like not it's not something I experienced. It's just like this this cultural moment. I think so much of like what I want, right, is for my my pain to be witnessed, so I think we want to feel we want space to, like, feel our feelings with someone who cares about us, which means we need to be in relationship with each other. Right. Like when random people who I don't talk to, like, sent me emails saying, you know, that they stand in solidarity with black folks and they're checking in on me. I'm like, we do not have a relationship like that's not helpful. So the people but when the people that I know, right, are showing up for me, it feels very different. Um and I think that that we are also uncomfortable with being in in each other's presence when we're grieving and when we're feeling pain, because we know people are uncomfortable with it. So we also need to know that it's welcome. I
1: feel like that doesn't come unless everybody all around has had a, a little bit of suffering. Like I feel like maturity plays a big role in being able to do that, but also having kind of Walked through the fiery valley too yourself. Oh,
2: but I think, like, I feel like so much of what I've learned about how to honestly how to hold space for other people's pain has come from watching kids. I feel like there often is this way in which, like, children I have been around will just like circle up around someone who's upset or hurt and just like be there with them, and they don't feel like they need to fix it or like do it. I mean, sometimes they'll like pat them on the back or or whatever, but, like, they often are able to do this beautiful thing of just being in each other's presence while someone is angry or crying or whatever and, like, be cool with it. And I think, I mean, you know, kids, like, maybe that's their version of walking through the fire because they've all had, you know, some kind of upset before as well. You know, like, I try to make sure, like, if someone is, I'm with someone and they're having a moment of grief or sadness or whatever, like, you know, I... I'm, I feel like what I do is either encourage them to talk more, right? If they're explaining something, if they're telling me something, or if they're, if, if it look if they're, if they silence, right? Like just letting them know that like, I'm okay with the silence that, that I'm welcoming that, that I'm just like, oh, what I'm doing is I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit here. I'm gonna be like, I'm just gonna sit here you, with you right now.
1: I've struggled a lot with depression in my adult life. And one thing I learned was like, when people ask you how you are, just say fine. Because, and it's, it was a very painful thing to realize, and it certainly wasn't true of everyone I knew, but most people just, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to be brought but down. But that is,
2: but then that tells you, what that tells you is, is what that relationship is. So that's information yeah. for you, right? Because that's a form of, that is a kind of form of rejection, Right. And what that is, is information for you. And I think that the, you know, I don't, I don't always tell people how I am when they ask. And right now I feel like there's kind of like an ongoing, you know, evolving dialogue in conversations I'm in where people are like, how are you? And I, I'll, you know, I'm like, oh, really? exactly. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, there's a fucking global pandemic and Sorry. we're all traumatized um, and you're not really asking. So hush. <laughs> You know, um, but then they're the people who I'm actually in relationship with. And when they ask, they actually are asking um, and and I don't want no, I'm not going to like disrespect the relationship by saying fine. If I'm not, um, it feels important to actually answer that question. And I try to be really and I don't always succeed at this, but I also try to be really mindful of asking people that, that if I'm asking somebody how they are, that I'm genuinely asking, especially right now, because I feel like it's such a loaded question, you know, and I'll say, like, how are you in this moment? As opposed to how are you? Which people I think interpret like as broadly, like, how's your life going right now? And I feel like that's a very complex question to be asking people. So, and I'll find it's none of my fucking business. So I'm not going to ask them that. I'm going (laughs) to be like, how are you in this moment? Like, what are you coming into this conversation with?
0: Mia, yeah, yeah. You answered everything. Thank you so much. Where can people find you, Mia?
2: I am Mia Birdsong everywhere. So miabirdsong.com, though I don't even know what's on my website right now. So (laughs) honestly, it hasn't been updated recently, but I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. at at Mia Birdsong.
0: I'm really grateful for your work. I'm really grateful. So thank you so much.
2: Thanks so much, Mia.
0: My pleasure thanks for listening to everything is fine we're your hosts i'm jen romolini and i'm kim france our producer is natalie rivera if you like the show be sure to rate it and review it on all the platforms you can follow the show's instagram at eif podcast email us at everything is fine the podcast at gmail you can find kim on her blog girls of a certain age.com. And we also have a Patreon, our Patreon, where we are serving up special episodes, exclusive content, a bunch of fun stuff. And our Patreon is patreon.com backslash everythingisfine. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times